A few months ago, Deb, our music director, asked me if there was an upcoming Sunday when I anticipated preaching about a topic where it might fit thematically to include the choir singing selections from the film The Greatest Showman. Have any of you seen the film? Okay, quite a few of you. Uh, so it is starring Michelle Williams, as was mentioned earlier, as well as Hugh Jackman and Zach Efron, or what I think of as, Wolf, you know, what if Wolverine and that guy from High School Musical started a circus? Uh, but uh, it is quite good in many ways, although it's not the most historically accurate uh, film of all time. Uh, and at that time, I hadn't yet seen the film, but I did know that it was loosely based on the life of P.T. Barnum. So I told Deb, um, I do think we can make that work because I'll just preach about the life of P.T. Barnum because conveniently, he was a prominent universalist. Indeed the, re- indeed, the reason I knew that he was a universalist is when I t- took my first graduate class in UU history, one of the required, pan- what required readings was P.T. Barnum's pamphlet, Why I Am a Universalist, which was published in 1890, the year uh, before he died. Uh, it sold 100,000 copies in its first three years and circulated well into the 20th century. A few days ago, we passed the 248th anniversary of John Murray preaching the first Universalist sermon in America. You'll hear more about that occasion as we approach the year 2020, which will be the 250th anniversary of Universalism in America. And as I have done in previous years, this anniversary is an auspicious time to reflect on the Universalist half of our UU heritage. And while we UUs are sometimes guilty of claiming famous people were one of us if they so much as set foot once in a UU congregation, uh, in the case of P.T. Barnum, he was an active and avowed universalist for many years. But Barnum's universalism was not how I first heard of him. Uh, maybe it was actually on Animal Crackers. If you remember those box says P.T. Barnum. And, uh, and if you notice, that the animals are now cage-free, if you've seen a recent... Uh, <laughs> box of animal crackers. Uh, but as likely the case with a few of you, my earliest associate might actually be with P.T. Barnum, you know, going to the circus, the Ringling Brothers and Barnumum Bailey Circus. How many of you attended at least one big top event before it closed? Some of you may know it actually closed last year. Uh, but the so-called greatest show on earth, founded in 1871, did have an impressive 146-year run. Numerous legends have grown up over the years around Barnum, some at his own encouragement, but historians have worked to separate myth from reality, you know, studying his actual diaries and letters and the records of those around him. And to, so to begin to tell you some of his story, Phineas Taylor Barnum, his life spanned most of the 19th century. He was born in 1810 in Bethel, Connecticut, and died in 1891 at the age of 80 in Bridgeport, Connecticut. Uh, he was named after his maternal grandfather, but to avoid confusion between the two of them, he was actually never called by that biblical name, Phineas. Uh, instead, they used his middle name, Taylor, causing his childhood friends to actually call him by the nickname Tail, T-A-L-E, which is actually quite prescient given the tall tales that he came to tell in his life. But I should hasten to add that he actually inherited that habit from his family of origin. Some of you may come from families of practical jokers, uh, but Barnum's family practiced what I think of as like next-level hardcore practical jokes. Like they were really invested in these things. I'll give you one early example from his childhood. 
When he was born, his grandfather Finn, after whom he was named, gave him, gave him a welcome to the world present, a deed to Ivy Island on the edge of Bethel, Connecticut. Uh, did any of you get an island when you were born? That's a, not a bad coming to the world gift. Uh, and from as young an age as he could remember, not only members of his family, but everyone who knew him from, from in Bethel would regularly tell him, you know, here comes the richest child in town because he is the owner of Ivy Island. Island, the most valuable farmland in Connecticut. And when he was 12, he finally set out to visit this fabled place. It does exist, but he was shocked to discover that not only did he almost drown on the way there and get bitten, almost get bitten by a snake, but he discovered it was you know, inaccessible and all but barren, and he owned not all of the island, but like the worst part of it. And having spent some eight years preparing the groundwork for this joke, the good folks of Bethel spent the next five years laughing at him about it. I should hasten to emphasize this was not a one-time occurrence. By the age of 12, Barnum had already been witnessed to and either the butt of, in some cases, or in other cases, the eager participant in hundreds of other practical jokes in and amongst his family. Fast forward two decades. And Barnum, now married with young children and in search of a way to support his family, had this you know, innovative idea of how to revitalize New York City's American Museum. The good news is that the museum was for sale. The bad news is, is that it was $15,000 and he was almost broke. Nevertheless, he impressed the museum's owner with his sales pitch about all his ideas for how to make money from the museum. And the owner said, you know... If only you had a piece of unencumbered real estate that uh, you could offer as additional security, I think I might venture to negotiate with you. As you can guess, a particular piece of real estate sprung to mind, that deed to Ivy Island. Uh, and the quick summary of what happened next is that um, Barnum paid off the mortgage to the museum in less than two years, and within a few more years, uh, in thanks to this purchase made in part by Ivy Island, he had become one of America's richest and most celebrated showmen. And that's typically how the story is told, and it's mostly true, but um, some important details got, often get left out of Barnum tales. It turns out that Barnum did offer Ivy Island as collateral, um, but actually when he was offering it as collateral, he didn't yet still own it. He had sold it to his half-brother for $60 a few years earlier, so he had to hastily go buy it back from his brother, fortunately willing to sell it to him for the same price. In the meantime, moreover, in addition, he also sweetened the pot with two additional pieces of uh, land. That museum owner actually wasn't an idiot, uh, that he it was an additional piece of land, and as well as he put his house on the line for this. Um, even moreover, it's not such bad collateral. All that was about $2,000, but even then, the museum owner retained the title to the museum's collections until Barnum had paid it back in full. Fortunately, a gift for practical jokes was not the only thing Barnum inherited from his family in general and his maternal grandfather in particular. Barnum's earliest religious experiences were of a very conservative um, theology that taught that humans were totally depraved, a very fatalistic predestination, a general hellfire and brimstone worldview. But it was his grandfather, the same one who gave him the island, that also introduced him to the liberal theology of universalism, which, which Barnum. Barnum embraced. 
And it's important to be honest that converting to universalism, as with conversions generally, did not instantly turn young Barnum into a you know, paragon of virtue overnight. In the ensuing decades, he went on to engage in a significant number of acts that range from morally questionable to morally reprehensible. His treatment of animals at times included behavior that was inhumane and cruel. He infamously exploited other human beings, such as that dwarf, um, Charles Stratton, who Barnum marketed as General Tom Thumb. You start to get in these ethical murky situations, though, of his life actually wasn't that great before, and was so you get into what was the life offered to, uh, to these human beings. But he also knowingly lied about exhibits from the so-called Fiji mermaid. You've heard about that already. That was glued together to the African-American woman, Joyce Heth, who exhibited the alleged 161-year-old nurse of George Washington. Uh, prior to the Civil War, when slavery was still legal in the South for a short time, he also owned an enslaved man who served as his valet. There are many more. These are just a few of, of many other examples. And while he's been falsely accused of coining the phrase, there's a sucker born every minute, he actually never said that. That wasn't, uh, that wasn't how he justified himself. So the way he slept at night, this may, not, may or may not be convincing to you, but that he believed that his customers always got at least their money's worth. That was what he always said, not that there's a sucker born every minute. Uh, the greatest support for his contention that even though people also, usually realized at least halfway through a Barnum exhibit that they were being fooled at least in part, being deceived in one or, one or more levels, they kept coming back to future shows. And any related controversy tended to just cause more people to come to figure out for themselves what all the fuss was about. Frankly, it's all a bit too similar for me to our reality TV show culture, our reality TV show president, for my comfort, but it does invite us to reflect some on some troubling aspects of human nature both then and now. For me, though, the bigger takeaway from studying Barnum's life is to consider how much worse his life would have almost definitely been without universalism. One of the most central and most difficult aspects of the universalist half of our heritage is literally the universal part that everyone universally, without exception, has inherent worth and dignity, even if they don't always live up to that. When we mess up, there are or there should be consequences, but the universalist perspective is that no one is ever beyond the chance of redemption. Um, Some of you may remember that Brian Stevenson quote from the book Just Mercy of, all of us are more than the worst thing we've ever done. In the case of Barnum, although he undeniably did many despicable things, his legacy is more complicated than simply being one of history's villains. Without the influence of universalism, he likely would have remained an unapologetic capitalist who content to make as much money as possible by whatever means necessary, all in the name of entertainment. But through his long involvement with universalism, we see him growing increasingly compassionate for increasingly different forms of people. One example is at the far too young an age of seven, he was taken by his family. This was not so uncommon at the time to take a seven-year-old to a public execution. He did not have the capacity at the time to 
realize what was happening, but it, that memory stayed with him. And many, and he, as he came to know many universalists and their work against the death penalty, based in that belief of no one is ever beyond redemption, um, for Barnum in later life, when he was elected to the Connecticut legislature, he became a staunch opponent of capital punishment. Another example is despite being very much a product of the worst parts of his time in regard to African-American rights prior to the Civil War, the abolitionist movement increasingly tugged at his conscience. And in the late 1850s, his political allegiances began to shift, crystallizing in his public support in 1860 for President Lincoln's um, presidency. Indeed, before the end of the Civil War, he ran for office on the platform that he wanted to personally be one of the people to vote on the proposed amendment to the U.S. Constitution to abolish slavery, and he indeed was one of those people. And as best we can tell, this choice was not mere political opportunism. Barnum proved himself an astute, hardworking member of the legislature in many different capacities. Regarding women's suffrage, he was never as fervent a supporter of women's rights as he was for the abolition of slavery. But notably for six years, from 1869 to 1875, his pastor at Bridgeport's First Universalist Society was the Reverend Olympia Brown, the first woman to be ordained with full denominational authority in America by the Universalists. Regarding her experience of Barnum, Reverend Brown wrote in her autobiography that he often made some complimentary remark when I came down from my pulpit. In turn, it was said of her that when the church was in need of additional money, she was not above asking the rich to be more generous in their contributions, and she would say from the pulpit, Mr. Barnum, I mean you. And Mr. Barnum never failed to oblige her. He gave tens of thousands of dollars to that congregation over the years. When her ministry was threatened over a controversy related to her allegedly spending too much time outside the congregation advocating for women's rights and not enough time inside the congregation, um, Barnum did not come to her defense. He said, I don't want to get involved with you know, this interchurch politics. Uh, Although he and Brown remained on friendly terms um, throughout the controversy as well as after, she was eventually forced out and moved to another congregation in Racine, Wisconsin, that is known today as Olympia Brown Unitarian Universalist Church. There's so much more to say about P.T. Barnum, but I hope I've given you a little sense of the complexity of his life, as well as the ways that universalism influenced him for the better, even if we could wish it had been efficacious earlier. In return, at his death, Barnum left that Bridgeport Universal Society a legacy gift of $15,000 in addition to what he'd given them before. He was just as generous a supporter of causes endorsed by the National Universalist Movement. Um, Some of you may know Tufts University. That's a historically universalist school. He gave then Tufts College $50,000 to establish a museum of national history and gave them another $100,000 after his death to add some wings to that museum. He did not neglect other universities Universalist educational projects of St. Lawrence University, historically universalist, uh, Lombard College, historically universalist. He gave them money as well, as well as the Universalist Publishing House and other charities. So keeping in mind, all those numbers are also in late 19th century dollars. But regardless of whether you come away from this morning loving P.T. Barnum, hating P.T. Barnum, having mixed emotions about P.T. Barnum, our story doesn't end with P.T. Barnum. 
In the same way that universalism challenged him to open his heart, to open his mind uh, beyond greed and self-interest, beyond initial narrow-mindedness, I invite you to consider these words from Diana Eck, a professor of comparative religion at Harvard University, that challenges us to consider what are the ways that Unitarian Universalism can open our hearts, our minds, our spirits beyond what is true for us in this moment. They're from a sermon that Dr. Eck preached a few years ago at the Unitarian Church of All Souls in New York City. They remain relevant today for the role that we Unitarian Universalists might play in our polarized society. She said to that gathered congregation as as a non-UU, she said, The world has need of your theology. If there ever were a time that we need to spin out a new fabric of belonging and a wider sense of who we are for the human community, it is now. In a world falsely divided by race, by religion, by ideology, the very presence of a religious movement like yours committed to the love of neighbor and the service to humanity is a beacon of hope. The Unitarian Universalist theology, and she said, yes, you have one does not replace the mystery of the divine, the transcendent, but it amplifies it and broadens it to include the many, many ways in which the sacred is known and yet remains unknown. And developing a consciousness of our growing religious interrelatedness, developing a moral compass to give us guidance in the years ahead, these are among the most important tasks of our time. She said, you have a theological orientation toward oneness and toward mystery that is essential for the world of difference in which we live. In this era, Unitarian Universalism is not the lowest common denominator. It is one of the highest common callings. All right, so I know it's 1230, but I have one more thing to say, and if you have time, you're going to want to hear the choir's postlude. So it's been a hard week. A lot of people are reliving some really hard parts of their lives as a result. And just in light of talking about universalist history, I want to remind us of the giants whose shoulders we stand on, you know, that in the 1700s, it was no small thing for our forebears in a deeply theologically conservative time to say, no, we're going to teach a theology of love in which no one goes to, you know, is damned to hell for at finite, um, you know, for what is it most finite error and that so they affirmed a universal salvation for all people. And that, evo- that same universalism, though, evolved over time and became less about rejecting hell in the next world or even heaven and became about loving the hell out of this world. So in the next centuries, that same universalist spirit manifested in the 19th century in the 1800s of saying we need universal freedom for all people. So the same way universal salvation was taught, that led the same... The, you know, the successors of those same people to fight for the abolition, uh, the end of slavery, to be universal freedom for all people. That then manifested in the 20th century. That same spirit of universalism manifested in many of our forebears being involved as suffragettes and saying we need universal enfranchisement. Everybody needs a voice. Everybody needs a vote. 
Um, so I think there are ways in which we can see that manifest, needing to manifest in the 20th, 21st century through things like, you know, universal health care for every human being, you know, universal access to education, you know, through college or through vocational training. I would go so far as a universal basic income. But irrespective of that, I want us to know that we can do hard things because our ancestors did hard things, right? I don't want us to just study UU history and to be inspired by UU history. I hope we are, and I hope we do, and I hope we are inspired, but I want us to make UU history. I want us to be part of manifesting that same universalist spirit in our time, in our place, to pave a, give a better world to our children and not a worse one. And so in that spirit, may you continue your journey with love. Care for one another, care for this one earth, do justice and make peace. And as you go, whatever taste or touch you've had in this time and place of hope, of love or peace or joy, that goes with you out into the world. We're different for having spent this time together. May you live boldly and with thanksgiving.